This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime viewers and listeners. So we're discussing today, Be'ezat Hashem. This is going to be the final uh, part of the three-part series on the hidden story of Matan Torah. Now, we, we spoke about what happened in the previous two classes, of what happened until the days that were coming up, until when God is going to go and give the Torah to the Jewish nation. Today, what we're going to be speaking about, Hashem, this is the final day. This is the day that God gave the Torah to the Jewish nation. So until this point, we had, there was 26 generations that went on from the beginning of the, of when the, of Adam Arishan, all the way until the Jewish people went and accepted the Torah. And the way that how important this day was, how important that this day goes, and it changes everything, it changes the world forever, uh, is that if the Jewish people wouldn't have accepted the Torah, then the world would have been destroyed. Meaning that the sake of the world was for the Torah. This is what the Gemara Shabbat, page 88a says. And furthermore, Rabbi Chaim of Lajan, brings down an Efesh that the entire earth, if the entire earth, from one end to the other end, would be idle even for one moment on Torah study, then the world would be destroyed. But not only the world, this, the upper world and the lower world, everything would be destroyed. Everything is found, the foundation of everything is, a, is, a, is the Holy Torah. And if we wouldn't have accepted the Torah, then the world would cease to exist. Us or anybody else, somebody needed to go and accept it. The Midrash in Shea Shirim goes and, and compares this to, to the Pasuk, uh, and Shea Shirim, where the, the, there was a, like a, a rose amongst the thorns. That's what the Jewish people are considered. Sort of like there was once a, a king. And he wanted to build this magnificent, beautiful garden. And he put with it figs and grapes and pomegranates. And then he handed it over to his caretaker to go and take care of it. And this caretaker went and didn't take really good care. He deserted it. Let it, you know, let it grow. After a while, the king comes back and sees that there's weeds growing everywhere. There's thorns. Everything is like completely messed up all over the place. He's like, what is this? He's like, I can't use any of this stuff. And he went and he hired like a crew to go and starting to just like clear it all out. And as the king is walking through the garden and the people are going and clearing things all out, the king sees one beautiful rose that's like sticking out over there. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, he's like, oh, hold on a second. He looks at the rose. He looks at it, smells it. He's like, you know what? This rose is so beautiful, so amazing. Because of this rose, I'm going to go and save the entire garden. I don't want the entire garden to be destroyed. We're going to build the garden again from this rose. There was 26 generations from the beginning of creation until now. These you know, generations were not generations that were following the way that God intended it. You had the generation of Enosh with idolatry. You had the generation of the flood, which unfortunately was erased with water. And all of a sudden, there was one rose, one rose that stuck out. And that is when the Jewish people said, When the Jewish people said, This is so beautiful to me. For the sake of this rose, God said, for the sake of the Torah, for the sake of the people that studied the Torah, the entire world will be saved. And when was the Torah given? The Torah was given on the, on the holy day of Shabbat. Shabbat Kodesh, that's when the Torah was given. Now, when the Torah was, the, you know, was given, the Jewish people were actually, when the day came, the sun was rising and the Jewish people were sleeping. And God had to go and wake them up. Uh, the Moshe Rabbeinu told them and urged them, he said, listen, he says, on this night, which was Friday night, stay up, don't, don't go to sleep. And people thought about it, be like, you know what, if we go to sleep, then we'll be fully rested. If we stay up, we might not be fully alert. So it's better that we go for, to fall asleep. And unfortunately, they fell asleep and they fell, says the Perkadir Blessed, they slept two hours into the morning. And what does this compare to? To when you have a king that makes declaration, says, I'm coming to this country in a certain, in a certain date. And everybody, you know, should, you know, obviously get ready. And then the king arrives 
and everybody's sleeping. Like, no one's out to greet the king. There are no signs, no posters, no people going there and greeting the king. So the king's messengers and entourage, they go and they run around, they play the trumpets, and they go and they make some noise, and they knock on people's doors. They say, what are you doing? The king is waiting. The king is here. How come no one's here to greet him? All of a sudden, we go back to our story, that, you know, God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes in Tal Sinai, and everybody is sleeping. So what happened? The God sent messengers, and things started happening. Mountains started shaking, trees started falling. There was a display of meteorological, you know, disturbances that were going on. Significant things were going on. And then, this came the sound, the sound of a shofar. The sound of shofar was very different than anything that we've ever heard before. This is usually human sounds. They, they start off strong as they go weaker as they get along. That's a human sound, because as you blow, you lose more air from your, you, you're exhaling more air from your lungs, so your power is less, and it goes, the, the sound goes lower and lower. But the way that this supernatural shofar went is that it started off low, and it kept on getting louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder, and it kept on going. One of the reasons was, was that God, in His infinite kindness, He didn't want to subject the people to the full intensity of the sounds right away. So instead, what He did was, is that He began softly. And softly, and then they became accustomed, they became adjusted to it, they were able to go and hear it. Now, once the Jewish people realized that it's a spiritual sound, they started getting really, you know, they started trembling, they started getting, you know, afraid. You know, you know this this fear, this, this uh, you know, trepidation that they had. Uh, at, you know, so you picture the scene at this point in time, the Jewish people are sleeping, right? And all of a sudden, there's like mountains shaking, trees falling, meteorological disturbances. There's this shofar that's getting louder and louder. And all of a sudden, they just like, you know, they just wake up. And they got so disoriented from the sounds that, you know, they were sort of like paralyzed with fear. And it reminds me of a time when I was, you know, in my house. Um, I, uh, I, in my, my bedroom growing up, was right next to the alarm system. So I don't know if they still do this nowadays, but the, the olden days, <laughs> the olden days, uh, growing up, the alarm system, there was a, a, there was a speaker on the outside of the house and there was a speaker on the inside of the house. The speaker on the inside of the house was right next to my bedroom. And I remember that, you know, there was a time where the alarm went off. It, birds, I don't know what, went into the screens. I don't know what the reason was. Irrelevant, but whatever it was, the alarm went off in the middle of the night. And I was a little kid and I remember, like, all of a sudden the alarm goes off and it's like, you know, you he- I heard it in, like, my brain. And I just, like, jumped out of bed but like sitting up and then I just froze like I didn't know it like I'm like what, what does this do like do I run do I sit do I hide do I, like you're sort of like paralyzed with fear when there's a suddenly like you're awakened you're like you need like a moment to like get your gatherings and bearings together over here the Jewish people were sleeping and all of a sudden there's like shaking stuff and things are falling and crashing and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's all these things and there's a loud chauffeur all of a sudden the Jewish people wake up and they freeze they're like what, what are we supposed to do like oh no and then all of a sudden they start thinking, they're like, wait a minute. Yesterday we said Na'asav and Ishma, but right now, I don't know if it was such a good idea. Look, 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 we could get killed over here. There's like trees and everything falling down. All of a sudden Moshe Rabbeinu goes and says, listen, there's nothing to fear. But we don't, we shouldn't be keeping the God waiting. Let's go. We have to hurry up and get it to the mountain. Now, even though the Jewish people overslept, they still were eligible to receive the Torah in the merit of their forefather Yitzchak Avinu who went and woke up early for the Akedah. And just like as a side point, look how uh, amazing it is that when you go and you have a test and you pass a test, that test affects your children. It doesn't just affect you. Yitzhak had a test. And he went and he woke up early to go to the Akadat to get basically slaughtered. And he, what happened over there from that merit, that ended up helping his, his not his children, but his great, great, great ancestors. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu goes and tells them, going back to our story, there's nothing to fear. 
there's bless, only blessing for those who stand at Hal Sinai. And in fact, anybody that came to Hal Sinai that were, let's say, sick uh, from any physical, mental, emotional disabilities, whatever it was, they were healed. Now, nobody could say that because of any issues that they had, they couldn't come, they were sick, they weren't feeling well. Everybody was completely healed. And not only they were healed physically, but they were also healed spiritually from any spiritual, you know, defilement that they had. We know that when the, when the Nachash, when the serpent went and forced Chava to eat from the tree of life, from the tree, that what happened was that, that the, the, this was sort of injected within her a zumai, a spiritual defilement. And this passed on to all humanity. And the way that it was is before Adam and Chava sinned, the forces of evil were external. They were, they were outside. How, and, and the, they still had free choice, but the free choice that they had to do a sin is like, you know, put your hand in fire or not. Like, of course you wouldn't do it, but you could if you want to. So like, the evil inclination was outside, and was like, put your hand in fire. Be like, I don't really want to. So that was the level of sin. Like, do the sin. I'm not, I don't really want to. But then, when they did the sin, when the Nachash came and convinced Chava, and they went and, and eventually Chava convinced Adam to do the sin, so this Zuma went inside, literally went inside of her. And look at the Gemara in Shabbat, page 146a. So what happens is that this caused a great confusion. Now, the evil inclination was no longer external, now it was internal, it was like part of, uh, you know, part of her, a part of all mankind. Now, when the time for it came from when God healed everybody, God also healed the spiritual aspect of this. Now the, the, the spiritual defilement, defilement, the evil inclination was no longer internal, it was external. The, the rest of the nations of the world, they still retained it in the internal, but the Jewish nation it moved to the external. Now, not only they got, they received this type of gift of healing and spiritual cleansing, but also they were, they were on such a level that they received the gift of immortality. They were never going to, they were never supposed to die. And not only that, there would be freedom from any poverty, diseases, any other troubles. They gained complete, complete freedom from it. Even though you could ask, if they were free from all these troubles, all the death, then how come the Torah speaks about death? You could ask, what's going on over here? If it, if it doesn't exist, then why did, was the Torah given that there's death? And the answer is, is that there were certain sections, these sections were given conditionally. If the Jewish people did not sin, then they wouldn't, they would have lived, uh, you know, you know, forever. But because they said now they're gonna go and they're gonna, you know, the, they go back to where they were beforehand. Now, unfortunately, with the sin of the golden calf, the sin of the Chet Egel, this is where the Zuma, this is where the, the, the defilement returned, and this is where all the curses of Adam and they had to go and they had to work and they had to go and, you know, to go through death and so on and so forth. However, even though the Jewish people sinned and they, lost the immortality of their own personal being, but there was still a collective immortality, meaning that the Naseh Venishma, that God said the nations will never ever be able to exterminate Israel. Israel, the nation of the, of the Jewish nation, will always live until the end of days. The blessing that we can see over here is that the Torah is the is the cure for everything. The source of everything is the Torah. Like people think that, you know, I, I live as a, as a, whatever it is, as, as a, as a person. I'm, I'm a man. I go to work. I go, I learn a little bit. You know, I'm a Jew. I, you know, but I do everything regular. So people think like the, the ikar, the main thing is that I do my, th- my, you know, my life and I do my work and I do my family. I do all that. The secondary thing, I happen to be a Jew. It doesn't work that way. The source of everything is the Torah. And that's why the Torah would have been, dis- the whole world would have been destroyed if the Jewish nation wouldn't have accepted the Torah. Everything is the foundation of the Torah. So the Torah is the, num- the, the ikar, Torah is the main, the, everything else is the tuffel, is the secondary. So, when the world was shaking, and the Jewish people are finally up, and they're making their way towards the Hal Sinai, the world also felt the shaking. The world also saw these sounds and heard the holy things. All of a sudden, they ran over to the people, to the person that they thought would be able to answer them, and they ran over to Bilam. Bilam was a prophet, and they could say, "What's going on over here? Is God destroying the world?" 
He's, he's like, no, God's not destroying the wall. It's like, are you sure? He's destroying it. He destroyed it. Maybe he's giving, sending a flood like he's done it before. So Bilam says, no, God promised that he's never going to send a flood again. So maybe the, you know, the people answered, that's referring to a flood of water. But maybe he's going to destroy us with a flood of fire. Maybe he's going to destroy us. So Bilam says, relax. It's not a flood of water. It's not a flood of fire. The reason why there's so much noise and the reason why there's so much commotion is because God is giving the Torah to the Jewish people. So, the, something interesting that happened over here. You, you think about it such a, like a crazy, you know, situation where God is coming and giving the Torah. So wouldn't everybody be interested in being a part of it? But the second that they go and they realize, wait a minute, it's for the Jewish people, it doesn't affect me. They knew that if they would go and they would accept the Torah that has some sort of, you know, in, you know, restrictions on their life, they weren't interested in it. And even though the world was shaking, it looked like it was going to be destroyed, and they were nervous, they ran over. But as soon as they heard, oh wait, it doesn't affect me, no, it's fine, I don't, you know, I don't need to worry about it. You know, when the coronavirus was in China, okay, now people didn't worry about it. All of a sudden it comes here, now you know everybody's worried about it. You walk in the street and you see somebody's picking a fight with somebody, you know, across the street. Unfortunately, New Yorkers, what do you do? You look the other way, you don't say anything, you don't do anything. Not saying that's the right thing, I'm not saying what you should do in that scenario and don't take this the wrong way. But when something is not affecting you, you don't really bother with it. If all of a sudden this person was picking a fight with you, oh, then things would change. You call 911, you call this, you, you know, you, you do whatever it is that you can. But people, you know, sort of feel, if it doesn't affect me, I don't have to deal anything. I sit back, relax, it's not affecting me. And this is, unfortunately, this is how the nations of the world, they saw it. They saw that, oh, there's so much commotion going on, there's so much craziness going on, but the second that they realized, it's not for them, it's not going to affect them, it's not for, you know, they're like, you know what, then we're not interested, and they went back to their regular life. Now, the... <clears throat> the people started assembling, the Jewish nation started assembling around the foot of the mountain. Um, the actual giving of the Torah took place at noon, at the, in the middle of the day. Now what happened was when the Jewish nation suddenly went and they assembled around the mountain, all of a sudden the mountain itself, the miraculous thing happened, that it uprooted itself. It uprooted itself and it rose and it went on all over to the heads of the people. Now, the, what happened was, is usually when you see like a mountain coming up and you, you run the other way, you, you just get out of there, whatever it is that you need to do, you don't want to be anywhere near that. Well, this mountain all of a sudden is just picking itself up. But what happened was that they saw this mountain go up and it slowly, it started expanding in circumference. And they understood what God was doing. God was going to put this all over the people. So instead of running away, the Jewish people actually clustered together to go under the, under the, under the mountain. And God goes and says like this, if you go and you accept the Torah, then everything is fine. But if you do not accept the Torah, then here is going to be your burial place. I'm going to put the mountain down on you and this is where you will uh, be buried. And the Jewish nation says, yeah, no, we accept it. We accept it. So God says, no, 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 it's not enough that I want you accepting it. I want guarantors. I want guarantors that, that could guarantee your commitment and that it's going to be genuine. So the Jewish people go and say, okay, fine, uh, the Avot, the Holy Avot, our patriarchs, they're going to go and they're going to be our guarantors. God was not satisfied with that. No, 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 I don't want the patriots, no, no. Uh, let's, uh, not the patriarchs, let's try to find somebody else. They go and they say, okay, fine, the prophets and the vi'im, our holy prophets, they're going to be our guarantors. And God said, Mm-mm. no, not satisfied. And then the Jewish people says, you know what? Our children, our children will be our, the guarantors. And God says, that I accept. I accept the children to be your guarantors. But it's not enough, we got to ask the children. God goes to the children, to the children that were born, the children that were not born yet. And he goes and he says, will you be the guarantors for your parents? And the children said, yes, we will. Maybe we could say here, chidush, beautiful chidush. We know that before Mashiach comes, we know it says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 23 and verse 24, it says, Before Mashiach comes, He's going to bring, Eliyahu Navi is going to come. And what's going to be, what's going to be in that day before Mashiach comes? The hearts of the fathers will be turned back, will come back through the children. 
And we see that. We see that nowadays. Before Mashiach comes, we see over here that the children are becoming more religious than the parents and they're bringing the parents. You look at the, the Kirov world. You look at the, the Chuva movement. It's so amazing that you have the children becoming more religious and they're bringing the parents slowly back to Torah Judaism. And the question is like, why would that be? Like, it's so, we see it, but it makes absolutely no sense. It should go the other way around. It doesn't go, it doesn't go that the children bring that back to the fathers. It should be the fathers go and teach your children. It's something very backwards. And this is something that we spoke about before, but maybe we could start connecting the dots over here. Why is it the children are going to bring back the parents? We know over here, we see over here, that on Matan Torah, the children were the guarantors. God goes over and says, do you guarantee that you're, you know, that your parents are going to be, uh, you know, keep the Torah? And now that the children are saying, yeah, we're, we're the guarantors, and now we're seeing that we're getting close to Mashiach, we're going close to the end of days. So now all of a sudden, the day, the time is, the clock is running out, all of a sudden the children are trying to bring back the parents, come back to the Torah. Why? Because we are the guarantors, we have to go and bring you back. Once the Jewish nation goes and accepts the Torah, the guarantors were in place, all of a sudden the mountain goes and brings, and goes back to its place. Now there's a very good question that you can ask. The, when God goes over to the other nations and he said, do you want to accept the Torah? He, God never put a mountain over the head. So the nations could come over to God and says, listen, you know, like we didn't accept the Torah, but you never forced us. If you put a mountain over our head, we would have also done and accepted the Torah. So they have a good, you know, a good question on God. So God, what would a Kadosh Baruch Hu answer them? He says, listen, he says, the Jewish nation, they already said from the beginning, Na'asev and Ishma, they already said yesterday that we will do and we will listen. It's not, and now I put the thing over their head, the mountain over their head. But you guys, you guys even denied it even from the beginning. It's two different things. If you would have said yes from the beginning, fine, then you had a claim. But the Jewish nation said from the, uh, from the outset, from the beginning, that we will do and we will listen, Na'asev and Ishma. Then leads us to a question, so why did God do that? What was the purpose of all this? If God is, you know, if we already accepted it, and God said we already accepted it, then what's the purpose of putting a mountain over our head? And the answer is something fascinating, something amazing, based off of Pasuk in Devarim, chapter 22, verse, verse 29. It says that if a man goes and forces himself on a woman, he is required to marry her and stay married for her forever. He can't decide that he wants to divorce her. We're not going to speak about if the woman wants to divorce and, you know, if she wants to leave and so on and so on. We're talking about from the man's perspective. Because he went and he forced himself upon a woman, he's required to stay married for her forever. So what did Hashem do? God went and forced Himself onto the Jewish people sort of to commit to Him so that His commitment will endure forever. Meaning that even if the Jewish people transgress the laws of the Torah, they transgress, they do Adar, they don't follow the Torah, God cannot say we divorce Him, we'll choose a different nation. God forced, God put a mountain over our head, forced us into compulsion, to going and saying that no matter what you do, I can never leave you. I am stuck with you. So while the mountain for our head was for our benefit, everything is for our benefit, but here we see how beautiful it was that God put us in a situation over here, in such a situation that we would be sort of stuck and we can never leave, but from the God, from the other side, from God's side, God, no matter how far we fall, we are always connected to God. This is uh, related to a mashal, uh, uh, a parable. There was once a princess and she reached, you know, age to get married. And the king went and tried to get her all the best, you know, the highest nobles and the highest people that, that the, from the highest, highest class, and princes from other kingdoms, and one after another. She says, not interested, not interested, not interested, not interested. So the king didn't know what to do. One time, the princess is, you know, going, you know, riding along the, the country road uh, with her entourage, and uh, she notices there's a peasant over there, peasant that's wearing ripped clothing, doesn't even have shoes, walking barefoot. She, uh, she pulls over a little bit over there and she says, she starts asking some questions. And she sees how he answers her with grace and humility. You know, just like the, the amazing the way that he composed himself. And she was so impressed with this person. And she goes back to the palace. 
she calls her, she goes to her father and she says, Father, I found, I found my zivug. I found the shidduch that I want to go and get married to. And she tells, you know, the father, this particular person and so on and so forth, this peasant. And the father's like, what? You want to marry a peasant? You have all the highest level. You're picking somebody from the, you know, from the lowest level. Why? You have so much. No matter what the king tried to convince her and to argue with her, there was no use. She made up her mind. She made up her mind and she wants this person to be her husband. So the king says, fine, what can I do? You know, I tried. He goes and he sends out messengers to go and collect this, uh, this peasant, bring him to the, ca- to, to the, to the palace. So the messengers go, they find this peasant, then they go to him and they say, listen, the queen, I mean, sorry, the princess, she wants to go and she wants to marry you. Do you accept to be her husband? He's like, to marry the princess? It's unbelievable. Of course I accept. And then for a second, he's like, wait a minute. He's like, why would she want to marry me? Like, I literally have nothing to offer for her. Like, I don't have any power. I don't have any fame. I don't have any money. Like, what is she coming to me for? And then he started thinking, you know what? Like, maybe the reason why she wants me is she wants to control her husband. So if she gets somebody at a high level, an aristocrat level, another prince, she knows that she, you know, like that person is going to hold very highly of himself, and you know she's not going to be able to control him. But how could it be easier? You find some sort of peasant, you get married to him, you control everything you want. He's like, listen, do I really want to marry somebody that will be? Yeah, I'll have fame, I'll have money, I'll have power, but I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to be suffering in a marriage. You know, like he was like, oh, wait a minute, I don't know if I want this. And then he's. Th- then he's thinking, but wait a minute, but maybe she really wants to marry me for who I am. And he's going back and forth, and he says, you know what? Let me, you know, put a sort of test and see what is her real purpose, what is her real reason for going getting married to me. So he goes and he tells the, the messenger, says, listen, he says, I thought about it. I do want to marry the princess, but I have certain conditions. And he's thinking, if she goes and accepts the conditions that he's going to put in, then he knows that she'll accept him for whatever and she really wants to marry him for who he is. But if he starts putting conditions and she's like, what? <laughs> You're putting conditions for me? I'm the princess. You can't give me conditions. I give conditions to you. Then he would know that all she wants is control. So the messenger says, fine. They went back to the palace and the messenger, this, this, this peasant goes and meets the princess and says, listen, I'll get married to you but I have X, Y, and Z conditions. And the princess is listening and she says, yeah, absolutely, that's fair. I'll, you know, of course, whatever it is you want, you, I want you to be happy. You're going to be my husband, whatever it is that you want, you'll get. So all of a sudden the peasant goes and says, wait a minute. So the princess actually really wants me for who I am. So all of a sudden this like heavy stone rolled off his heart. He's like, okay, this is, now I'm getting to something true, something good. Now we go back to our story. The Jewish people were offered the most amazing Torah. The famous statement that they said, nah, seven ishma, we will do and we will listen. But then a day passed or two passed. And they had time to think about it. They're like, wait a minute. We made such a commitment to the difficult Torah. One deviation from it, maybe God will go and strike us down. The world was shaking. They woke up all of a sudden. They're frightened. They're stuck in their beds. And they're sitting over there like, what did we just do? Like, God, there's trees falling down. There's a loud noise. Did we just mess up? Like, one mess up that we do, one mistake that we do, God is going to destroy us. What did we do? They hesitated. They reconsidered over here. So what happened over here? God raised a mountain over their head. And He gave them another opportunity to this time to accept it without any reservation. Meaning that until now they went and they were like, okay, maybe we'll accept it, maybe not. Now all of a sudden, God is giving them another chance. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, another chance? We could have another chance? We could go and accept the Torah again, this time without any reservations? That So like we could do a do-over? All of a sudden there was, a, you know, the concept over here of tshuva was, was opened up to them. There's a door of repentance, meaning that even if we mess up, even if we fall short, we could still come back. So that's what God was doing. God, you know, they said now seven ishma, and then they got scared in the, you know, in their beds, and they woke up. They started thinking, wait a minute, what did we do? God wanted to fix all that. Wanted to fix. Wanted to come to the to, to the Torah, fully accepted in it. So He put a mountain over the head, meaning that hey, you could decide again. 
You can decide whatever it is that you want. So all of a sudden they saw that they had the ability to redo stuff. They had the ability to do tshuva. Then all of a sudden they went and they accepted the Torah fully. There's another. Uh, there's other additional reasons that um, w- the reason why God put the Torah over their head before they go and they accepted the Torah before they went and they got the Torah was that originally they accepted the Torah. Everything was good. Everything was nice. Everything was dandy. Everything was great. So they said, okay, of course we'll keep the Torah out of love when everything is good. But God said, well, you also have to keep the Torah when you're when it, the times are difficult, when you're under duress, when you have a mountain over your head. Are you going to still keep the Torah now? So the Jewish people said, yes, we'll keep it even now, keeping it when it's good and we'll keep it when it's difficult. The Chassam Sofer also brings down that the Jewish people re- reached a level of angels. They reached a level of angels. So, to the, to the point that an angel is stationary. An angel is a very, very high spiritual being. But they can't go up and down. They're stuck. They, you know, they're stuck to where they are. So the Jewish people may have thought, listen, we reached a level of angels. Maybe we're stuck where we are. Maybe we won't be able to reach a higher level. Maybe we won't be able to grow even higher. So God put the mountain over them, says the Chassam Sofer, why? To teach them that you're still capable of reaching a higher level. You could still capable of climbing higher, even though that you are on a, a level of an angel at this point in time. Obviously, when they did the sin of the Chet it went down a little bit. But at this point in time, they were at such a high level, they were capable of reaching uh, even a higher level. No matter where they were, they still could keep on going higher and higher. I told Moshe Rabbeinu, that that um, you have to go now and warn the people. What are you going to warn the uh, you know the people uh, that they shouldn't go and they shouldn't go into the you know into the mountain. They shouldn't go close to where the um, where the mountain is. So Moshe Rabbeinu stops for a second and he says, "Wait a minute! I have to go and warn the people." You know. Again, we warned them a few days ago. They've been already warned three days ago. Why do we have to warn them again? So says Rabbi Levi Yitzchak He goes and he says that, what did, what did God answer Moshe Rabbeinu? Lech red. Go and descend to warn the people. Why? What, was, what does it mean? Says Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Moshe Rabbeinu was on a, such a high level. He was on such a high level that he goes and he says, I don't understand. We already warned the Jews a few days ago. And in his high level, if you tell him something once, that's it. It's going to happen. Like, why would the Jewish people need to go and be warned a second time? They're already warned already before. So what did God say? God said, lech red, lech red, meaning go down from your level, from your high level. You have to go down. You have to go down to the level of the people. Just because you have such a high level that if something was said a few days ago, you're going to stick to it and nothing's going to change, doesn't mean that everybody is on that level. And this, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu here was taught by God how to be a true leader. If you want to be a true leader, you have to realize that there's variance in the, in, you know, in your group. Each person, you have to relate to them as an individual level. And don't think just because you reach a certain level that everybody else is on that level. And this is unfortunately happens to us when we go, and let's say we raise ourselves to a spiritual level, and we look at other people and be like, wait a minute, this person is still doing X, Y, and Z? How could they do that? And we look at them with, you know, disdain and disregard to their, you know, you know to who they are as a person. And, and like, we can't judge them. We don't know. We're not on the level. We didn't go through their, you know, struggles and their, you know, uh, par- personalities, and their, their trials and tests that they had to go. We weren't part of that. We cannot go and say just because we are the way we are that everybody has to be that same way. Everybody has to be dealt with on their own level. And some people need to be warned twice. So God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, go and warn the people twice. So, 
Moshe Rabbeinu goes, and and the, the, also another reason is that you know people when you're in the back of the crowd and you want to see something that's at the front. So what do people usually do? They push or they try to move around to go and get to the front of the line. So maybe inadvertently, even though they were warned, maybe now they're going to push themselves up to the front and they're going to you know go over the boundary that they're not supposed to. And in fact, the Mam laws brings down that even the boundary itself, the boundary around the mountain itself, that itself warned the people not to go you know close to them. Now, as the time was getting closer for the for the giving of the Torah, there was a mysterious, like purple, va- you know, vapor that went down that smelled, you know, like a roll, like it's just like smelled beautiful and enveloped the entire mountain, like sort of like a purple mist. And uh, there was the Anan and the Rafael clouds that they spread across the entire heavens, and all of a sudden the day was plunged into like a deep shadow. And God tells Moshe Rabbeinu that when you come up back into the mountain, I want you to stop halfway in the mountain. Don't come all the way up. And one of the reasons is, is that, you know, if God is going to go and start giving the Torah to the people, the people will suspect, you know what, maybe you are going and you're the one who is actually talking to them and tricking them. But if you go halfway to the mountain, then the people will see that you're stuck over here and the voice is coming or, you know, God is speaking from, 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 you know, from up the mountain. They would never suspect that you're actually going and pretending to give the Torah and it's actually coming from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So, Moshe Rabbeinu goes and brings this, uh, you know, instructions to the, to, you know, to the people. Now, the way that it worked when the Shekhinah, when God created the world, the Shekhinah, the divine presence was originally supposed to be on the, you know, it, you know, in the world. Now, what happened was, is that when Adam Alishan made, made the sin, so he went, the, he went and the Shekhinah removed itself from its earth and went up to the first, you know, heavens. And then in Cain, when Cain did, you know, a sin, it went from the first heaven, it went to the second heaven, the Shekhinah. And then when Enosh did the sin, it went from the third level, you know, uh, you, you know, to the fourth level. And then the sin of the, fa- the, the flood, I'm sorry, went to the fourth. The tower of Babel went to the uh, fifth. The, the sins of Saddam went to the sixth. And finally, the sins of Egypt in the time of Abraham Avinu, it went to the seventh, you know, heaven. It, the sword of the Shekhinah, after all the, the generation, the heavy sins of the generation, it kept on raising itself from the earth, from the earth, basically from the world and moving up to, you know, higher into the, into the heavens. Now what happened was, when Abraham, when he came in and he did all the mitzvot and all the, the kedushah that he brought down, he brought the, the Shekhinah down from the seventh to the sixth heaven. And then you had Yitzchak, he brought it down from the sixth to the fifth. Yaakov from the fifth to the fourth. Levi fr- brought it from the fourth to the third. Kehat went and brought it from the third to the second. Amram went from the second to the first. And Moshe Rabbeinu was able to go and bring down the, the you know, the divide, the Shekhinah to Har Sinai. And when the Shekhinah went and descended onto the mountain, the mountain sort of like lifted itself up again, sort of like the, a servant running to greet its, its master. And sort of you saw like the heavens and the earth were sort of like coming together. And what the Jewish people saw is that at this point in time, the seven heavens, the seven parts of the heavens, they all parted, and you, they saw they, they, they saw the glory of the Shekhinah. And they also, the Jewish people also saw there was 22,000 chariots of angels that were clothed in fire, that were accompanying one side of the Shekhinah, and they held in their hands the crowns. These are the crowns for the Levi'im. And one of the reasons that the Levi'im specifically got these crowns is that they would not go and worship the, the eagle, the golden calf. Now, when... HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and he opened up the heavens and he, the, the, what they saw at this point in time is they saw what even Yechezkel and Yishayahu and Avi did not see. And the Zohar brings down in Parashat Yisrael that Yis, the Jewish nation was able to see as one can see light 
in a glass lamp with the the light that this this same type of light that the prophets Yechezkel, which was such a high level prophet, was only able to see behind many coverings. So they were able to see things that no one else ever saw before. And uh, what they were also able to see is that they 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 God sort of like opened the heavens and they were able to see that there was no one else other than God. They saw that God was alone. And here is where we can start beginning when Kadosh Baruch Hu started speaking the commandments to the Jewish people. Now, the, until this point in time, there was a lot of noise, there was a shaking, and there was, you know, things that were happening. But when God started to speak, the world was silent. Not even birds chirped. There was nothing. The entire world was silent. The world sort of like stopped. And just before God gave the Ten Commandments, the, the Jewish nation went, and they said, Shema Yisrael Hashem Enokeinu Hashem Echad. And Moshe went and concluded, Baruch Shem Kavod Machuto Le'olam Ba'ed. At this point, God began to say the Ten Commandments and started with the first one, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am Hashem, your God. What is that? And what happened was over here is that the people, when they heard God speak, they recognized it at the same voice that they heard, the same sound that they heard before when Moshe was, was speaking to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And when, when God started speaking the commandments, the, what, there was something very fascinating that happened. That even before God uttered the words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem your God, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God spoke all Ten Commandments in one shot. Like in one sound. Now this is impossible to understand because we can't even comprehend that. But, um, the, the, God sort of said all the Ten Commandments simultaneously. And people, you know, cannot hear multiple sounds simultaneously. So they heard it sort of a, a muffled, indecipherable, you know, like sound. And then God went and repeated the Ten Commandments. And the Ramban, Nachmanides, writes that the Jewish nation heard the entire Ten Commandments from God, but the first two they understood as a level as Moshe Rabbeinu understood. And the Rambam argues and said they only heard the first two and they didn't hear the other ten, but regardless of whatever it was, when they, when the, the, the purpose of going and bringing all the commandments at one time, even though they wouldn't be able to understand it, they wouldn't be able to comprehend it, it was so that the, um, the Torah should be learned that it's a whole. It's not something that you could deal with half and half. It's not something that it's, you know, you could take you, you, you could take part of it or you could take another. No, the whole Torah was given in one shot to show you that it's one, you, you can't pick and choose of what you want. Another reason is, is that it would be impossible that the Torah was given any by anything, any other being other than Hashem. Why? Because not even an angel could go and utter the Ten Commandments in one shot. The Arachayim goes and brings down that the first commandment represents all positive commandments. And the second commandment goes and represents all negative commandments. Now when God spoke, the voice of God was divided into seven different voices. Sort of to parallel seven groups that were among the Jewish nation. You had the elders, the Zakanim, you had the youth, you had the, un, you had the unmarried people, you had the children, you had the infants, you had the women, and then you had Moshe Rabbeinu. And God provided each one according to its abilities and strengths. So for example, and this is similar to the way that the man worked. Um, for a pregnant woman, God, they, they heard in a very soft, gentle, you know, voice, not to cause them any, any miscarriage or any terror that would cause them any trauma to the fetus. And each person, they heard the, the, uh, you know, they, they sort of understood, not heard, they understood the Torah according to their knowledge. Which means was, is that it based on how they prepared, if someone prepared a lot, so they learned it, let's say, they, the, sort of like in a Talmudic, uh, logical analysis type of understanding. Uh, other people, you know, on a lesser level, they only learned it at the literal sense. Other people, uh, just like through the level of the laws. People that really prepared also get, were able to go and learn it through the deep Kabbalistic mysteries. So, it all depended on the individual's spiritual preparation to the day of when the Torah was given, that's the level of how the person went and went and, and was able to like understand things when God spoke to them. 
Now, these seven sounds, these, the, you know, the, the commandments, when it was given by God, it was translated into all 70 languages, that the Torah will exist in all languages. So in the future, to all Jews, no matter where they live and which language they would speak, the Torah was available. Now, when the Jewish people, they heard the, the sound, so it appeared that it's coming from one area. So they sort of like one over to one area and they, to, to try to listen to it better. You know, when you hear a sound and you want to like, even though you hear it okay, but sometimes you want to get like even closer to the source of it. So they, let's say they, they saw it coming from the south, so they started going to the south to try to, to, try to hear it. But then all of a sudden, you know, as they got closer to the south, the sound appeared that it was going the other way, going from the north. So they get, went closer to the north. And when they got to the north, it appeared that it was coming from up. And they would try to look up and it appeared that it was coming down. Wherever they went, the sound was coming from like a different direction. And one of the one of the purposes and the reason for this was it was that the Jew, that God wanted to pe- teach the Jewish people that God is above the concept of, of makom, of place. God is not. God is everywhere. Not over here, not over there. So you don't need to get a closer, you know, to the mountain to go on one side or another side. Everywhere was exactly the same. And wherever you think that you're getting better, it would sound like it's going from the other, from the other angle. And, you know, usually when you're speaking to a large group of people, then some people have difficulty hearing, some people are further, some people are closer. Here, everybody heard, there's no difference. No matter where you are, you heard it exactly the same. You heard of the, the, you know, the elders, the men, the women, the children, they all heard it, no difference where they were. And not only the people heard it, and they felt it and they saw it, but rather every single Jewish soul, the middle of the Chazal tell us, that even from the, you know, that were, that passed away, even that weren't born yet, even that were there, in, you know, present right there and now, there were, every single soul was present on Halsinai. Every single soul. And they were able to go, and this is not only the souls, but everybody was able, they were able to see the sound. Something that was very, very fascinating. Um, that, you know, when, when God spoke, sort of the words formed into letters. And they, it sort of like rose high. I can't even picture it. Like I try to picture it, like maybe it's like, you know, fireworks, but it's not even that. Like you can't even picture it. But sort of like the, 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 it was like the voice that came out from the Shekinah was sort of like, it, it was like a fiery sparks that formed into letters. And this letters rose high into the sky that everybody was able to see that. So for example, from the first word of the, of the Ten Commandments is Anochi. So the Aleph, Nun, Chaf, and Yud, they all like went into like, like with fire in people's eyes, like near people's eyes in all directions. And even when somebody tried to like grab it, it sort of like eluded their grasp. And also, Hashem was demonstrating that He was everywhere, not above, like all over the place, you know, it existed. So it's something like, it's very hard to like actually like visualize. And what happened was, is that as the words left the Shekhinah, as the words left the mouth of God, so to speak, they, they went like shooting stars and they went, they became engraved into the tablets that Moshe, that Moshe Rabbeinu was holding. And each commandment, when God spoke, took the form of an angel. And this angel was, you know, each each angel went over to, to a particular Jewish person, and it says, do you accept this commandment? And they said, yes. Do you accept its laws, its penalties, its reward? And they said, yes. Do you accept all the 248 commandments corresponding to your limbs and organs? And they said, yes. And do you accept the 365 prohibitions that's compared to the days of the, you know, the solar year? And they said, yes, we do. And this is the pattern that followed each each successive commandment. God went and, and had an angel go and each person went and said, yes, I accept it. Now, when the Torah that the Jewish people learned like this, it was remained in their minds forever. This like, you know, you don't forget that. This is something that stuck with them forever. Now, the 
problem was is that they were so scared at this point in time. We were so scared that the bodies and the soul were shaking. It was literally shaking. And some even suggest that the reasons, you know, sometimes when you people are learning, they, you know, they shake back and forth. They shuckle back and forth when they pray and they learn. One of the reasons was it was customary based off what happened when, uh, in Hasi night people were so nervous and they were just like shaking back and forth. And that's why it's sort of like our souls like connected like the shaking back and forth. So all of a sudden you're having all this, you know, like, you know, scared, you know, like voices and fire and, and all this stuff that's going on. All of a sudden people like were like, wait a minute, was it smart of us to go and say, we want to hear the, you know, the Torah directly from God? Because that's how they went to Moshe Rabbeinu. The, the, Moshe Rabbeinu went over to them and says, do you want to accept the Torah? And they, you know, a few days prior, they said, yes, we'll accept it, but we want to hear it directly from God. Said, Maybe it wasn't so smart of us to do that. Look what's happening over here. Look how scary it is. So the, the strong ones, the spiritually strong ones, they were still so scared that they went and they retreated. They went to the back. And it's sort of like the people on the back have to make more room for the people in the front that were running to the back. And then you had people that were weaker than those, and they just like fainted on the spot. Then you had the weakest of all, they actually went and they passed it with the souls, left their bodies. And this is what Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, at each utterance that left God's mouth, the souls of the Jewish nation departed. It's sort of like they died. They died. The souls went up to heaven. And what God did is God lowered the dew. There's a special dew that's destined to be for the resurrection of the dead, for Tchiyat Metim. And God brought the dew down, and they came back to uh, back to life. And this happened for the first commandment and for the second commandment. Now, you would think that somebody that died twice and came back to life, you know, twice, and went through this traumatic experience, you would have some sort of residual effect on the body, on the soul, but it had absolutely no ill effect on them. In fact, it had a positive effect on them. That those people that they never saw, suffered after they died, they never saw suffered any infestation of any uh, vermin, you know, the corpses remain free for, you know, of worms. But still, the Jewish people, after the receiving of the second commandment, they went to Moshe Rabbeinu and said, Moshe Rabbeinu, please, beg, beg God to stop. We can't do this. It's too much for us to die and to get back, to die and to get back. You know, it's very tiring, very difficult. So they said, you know, maybe be better that you tell us, God will tell you and you tell us the, um, you know, the whatever whatever we need to learn from the Torah, the commandments, the rest of the commandments. And furthermore, the Jewish people said that it will help us in the long run. Because if we ever, God forbid, transgress something of the commandments, we'll be punished so much more severely if we heard it from God. But if we heard it from you, then the punishment will be less severely. And Hashem called Moshe Rabbeinu and says, you should know, the Jewish people are right. That if they hear it from me, it will, the punishment will be more severe. But if they hear it from you, it will be, the consequences will be, will be less as severe. So Moshe Rabbeinu goes and says, not a problem. He tells the people, he calmed them down. He says, it's not a problem that you went and you heard the first two. Don't feel bad. What did we do? We shouldn't have done that. God wanted you to hear the first two uh, commandments directly from him. Why? Number one is that this will make you, this, this fearsome experience will make you an exalted nation. It will raise you to a higher level. And additionally, it will humble you. It will humble you. And one of the, one of the ways to acquire Torah is through humility. You want to acquire, you have to be through humility. And by the way, it's not only Torah, even in relationships. If somebody works on humility, it, it affects everything, especially the relationships, because you won't be upset every little thing that happens. So it's so important to work on humility. God says you want to go and learn Torah, you have to be humble. So this experience is a very humbling experience. Death is a very humbling experience. And also, this is also why there was thunder and lightning. There was noises when the, right before the Torah was given. Why? Because it sort of freed the mind from anything else. It gives you the proper mind of accepting the Torah. And also, they enjoyed here a special prophecy. They heard God. They saw they, the, the, the heavens opened up. They saw here what even the greatest prophets will never see. This is one of the reasons for this is that if there will be ever come a self you know, proclaimed prophet will ever come and say, hey, by the way, these events that happened on House I never took place, you should know that it's a false prophet. Why? Because you are there. And finally, for the final reason, that we're going to discuss tonight, is that the, you know, God knew that in 40 days, the Jewish people would worship the golden calf. 
And the Jewish people could say, you know what? If God didn't give us, didn't speak to us, we, you know, if, meaning that if God would have spoken to us, we would have never gone and done the sin of the golden calf. And now that God, you know, didn't speak to us, you know, maybe that's why we sinned. So God didn't want them to use that as an excuse. So God went and he spoke to the Jewish people. So now they can't say, oh, you know why we went to the sin of the golden calf? Because we heard it from you, Moshe Rabbeinu. How do we hear it from God? We wouldn't have never done it. So now they heard it from God and now they asked to not hear from God, to go and hear it only from Moshe Rabbeinu and God, you know, uh, you know agreed with it. So God goes and says, now we're going to go through Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe Rabbeinu was by the bottom of the mountain. The, the angels Michal and Gavriel went and they took Moshe by the arms and they sort of brought him up like to the mountain, sort of like flying like a bird. And he went over there and when Moshe, the way that Moshe received the, the rest of the commandments is the Jewish nation also heard it. And the way it worked was is that it was, it was sort of like they heard God say, Moshe, Moshe, go tell the Jewish people such and such. And Moshe Rabbeinu went and told the people such and such. So even, the, even then at this point, the Jewish people still heard it. But now the question is, is Moshe Rabbeinu is standing there on a mountain and he has to you know, speak to almost 3 million people. How, you know, you're talking about a span that's over 8 miles long. No matter how loud your voice is, it's not going eight miles. No matter how quiet it is, it can't reach that far. So what happened over here? That God made, you know, sort of gave a boost to Moshe Rabbeinu's voice that it reached even the most distant Jew. They could hear him clearly. And now that Moshe Rabbeinu is now going and he's giving them the, you know, the commandments, the rest of the commandments. You know, Moshe is acting as an intermediary. All of a sudden, people are like, "Wait a minute, what did we do? Like before, we had it given by God, and now, you know, if God would have given us a high, it would have been stuck in our hearts and our minds forever." says, what do we do? Why did we ask Moshe Rabbeinu to do it? So now they're, they're sort of like flipped back. They're like, they change their mind. Moshe, we want the, you know, we want God now to give to us. And Moshe Rabbeinu, at this point, it's too late. But don't worry. You're worried right now. Why? Because you're going to learn the Torah from me and I would, might, it might go and get you to, to forget certain things. If you would learn it from God, you would never forget. But now you have a possibility of forgetting. But don't worry. Whatever you learn will, will always be with you in Olam Abba, in the world to come. So this is how the, the commandments went and it, it was finished, uh, it was finished at mid-afternoon. And here God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, go back to their, let them go back to their tents and resume regular existence. Now, they, the Jewish people are bound by dietary laws and they came back and they were like, wait a minute, you know, they didn't have any meat dishes that were properly kosher. They, you know, so they couldn't really eat the meat stuff. So what do they have to do? They're only able to eat dairy dishes. And in some opinions, this is one of the reasons that there's a custom to eat uh, dairy food on Shavuot. Moshe Rabbeinu, he, uh, he remained on the mountain. He remained speaking to God. And Hashem gave him another message for the Jewish people. And, and that was that make sure that, you know, the Jewish people understand that they did not receive commandments secondhand on Mount Sinai. They themselves heard it. They all heard it and they all saw it. They were there. The Torah is given without any intermediaries. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu was an intermediary for some of the commandments, they still heard what the, God said, Moshe, Moshe, go and tell them such and such. So there should be no doubts, no reservations in the Jewish people's mind. And God goes and says they have to be very careful not to make any images, any statues, any other representations of me in order to serve, you know, in order to serve me. There's no intermediaries. If you want, directly to God. You don't need any middleman. You go directly to God. You want to pray? Speak to God directly. Now, the, Hashem went and gave him, uh, t- taught Moshe like civil laws governing interpersonal relationships. And this is what's outlined in Pashat Mishpatim. And then, um, and, and then what happened was, is after Moshe Rabbeinu went and told this to the Jewish people, Moshe Rabbeinu went back to the mountain, and he, this is where he was going to be go- gone for the next 40 days, where he was going to go into Shemaim. Now I want to finish off with one thought, and that is the, the, the Midrash in Bamidah Rabbah brings down that the Torah was given with three things. It was given with fire, with water, and, and, and the desert. And the question is, why all these things? So number one is just like fire, water, and desert are all free, so too Torah 
is free. It doesn't, you don't have to, you know, it doesn't cost anything to learn. It doesn't cost anything to study. Everything is free. Another reason also, for, particularly for fire, is the, that Rabbi Yitzhak goes and says that why was the Torah given, you know, amidst of fire and darkness? Because that one who devotes himself to Torah is delivered, is saved from the fire of Gehenom, the fire of, of hell. And the Shemesh Mul goes and brings down something so beautiful. You have to stick with me for a little bit on this one. The, um, the Shemesh Mul goes and says that a person is comprised of three primary constituents. And that is, you have the goof, the physical body, that's the body. Then you have the two non-physical parts. One is the sechel, which is the intellect. And then you have the nefesh, which is the emotional aspect. So you have the physical, the intellectual, and the emotional. Now, the Torah was given three things. Wilderness, fire, and water. Let's go through each part and see how it relates to each different part of the constituents of the, uh, you know, the, that comprise a human being. The Wilderness lives alone. It doesn't, it's not in contact with any civilization. This corresponds to what? To the intellect, which is the, the brain sits in the head, separate from the rest of the body. Also, what's also separate is what goes on in a person's head. A person's intellectual makeup, a person's thought process is different from everybody else. So just like the desert is separate from humanity, from civilizations, so to the brain, the intellect is separate from, uh, you know, civilization. And this is referring to the intellectual aspect, the sechel. Then you have the fire. The fire is the enthusiasm, the, the, the you know, that, that encourages one person to act. This is the fire of the soul, this is the fire of the nefesh, the emotional aspect of the fuel, the, you know, the person. And that's the emotions, that's the nefesh. And and finally, water is something that's the phys- that represents the physical element of man. And the way that the Shemesh Mul goes and explains this is the way that the Maral, he brings down the Maral, and he says that every object is described as either Chomel, Chomel is raw substance, and then there's Tzura, which is actually the form of the substance. So an example, wood is the raw substance, a chair is the final form. So uh, wood is the Chomel, and you know the chair or the books or the bookcase, whatever it is, is the Tzura, is the form. Water is the most unchanneled chomer. It's the most unchanneled form. It, it goes because when you put water, pour water or something, it forms whatever vessel that you put it in. So the aspect of physicality, that is represented by water. A human body is similar, is like a undeveloped, you know, uh, a chomer, undeveloped raw substance. What gives the human body substance? That's where the soul goes in and gives the physicality some substance. So we have over here the fire, the water, and the, and the desert all correspond to either the intellect, the emotions, or the physical aspect. So the wilderness is intellect, the fire is emotion, and the water is the physical. Now the Gemara in Chagigah, page 6b, goes and says, Rabbi Akiva says the Torah was given in its entirety at Hal Sinai. That's time number one. Then it was repeated in the in the tent of meeting. The Omar is repeated again twice. This is by the Mishkan. And then it was repeated again by Alve Moab, in the plains of Moab. Now, let's break up these three things and how they correspond to the intellect, the uh, the uh, the intellect, the emotions, and the physicality. The Mishkan, the, I'm sorry, let's start with Hasinai. Mount Sinai was primarily an intellectual acceptance of the Torah. This is symbolized by where was Sinai, where was the Torah given? In the desert, in Hasinai, in the desert. So what was it? This is corresponding to the intellectual acceptance of the Torah. Just like the head is separate, so too the desert is separate. That's an intellectual aspect. That's where the Torah was given. The Mishkan was a place where it was given again. Where was this? What was the Mishkan? The Mishkan was a place where a Jewish person would be able to go and bring korbanot, bring offerings, bring sacrifices. So for either it could be repenting for their sins and things like that. This is an emotional acceptance of the law. And this is corresponds by the fire. Why is the fire? Fire is the nefesh. Fire is the emotions. How does a person bring a kolban? He brings a kolban and a fire comes down from heaven to go and accept that kolban. So that's the mishkan was repeated again. This was corresponding to the emotions, to the fire. And finally, 
the Arve Moab. The Torah was repeated again in the plains of Moab. Why, what was the plains of Moab? This is by the waters of the Jordan. This is the waters corresponding the physical acceptance of the Jewish people. So we see over here that the Torah was given in desert. It was given in, you know, with fire and it was given with water. Why corresponding to each different intellectual capacity, intellectual, I'm sorry, into, into each, you know, corresponding part of the human, of the human being. Number one, you have the, the intellect. The intellect that was a desert. Then you have the fire. That's the emotion. And then you have the water and that is the physical. And that corresponds to the times that it was given, you know, you know, three times. It was given by the desert, by the Harsinai, intellectual. By the Mishkan, fire, that's emotion. And Alveh Moav, by the waters, that's a physical acceptance. Now listen to how it so beautifully plugs in. And this, what happens at each stage when you have a, a particular point where you have a, a chance of such high success, that's where the evil inclination is going to go and try to get you. So what happened? In each of these scenarios, the evil inclination went and tested the Jewish people in the sin in, in the, that's corresponding that that uh, you know that part, whether it be intellect, emotion, or physical. Let's look at Hasinai. Hasinai, we said that was in the desert. That corresponds to the intellectual part. What was the sin that the Jewish people did right after giving the Torah in the desert? They did the sin of the golden calf, the sin of idolatry, the sin of Avodah Zarah. That's an intellectual sin. That was a sin that they did in the intellect. At the Mishkan, what was the sin that they did? That was the sin of the Maraglim, the sin of the spies. How this is spies, when they went, there wasn't a thought-out reaction when they went into Eretz Yisrael and they saw the giant. It wasn't a thought It was an emotional reaction. God said, you should go, we'll be able to take over it. But they went and they got scared. So it was an emotional reaction. So they sinned with their emotions. And finally, in the plains of Moab, and Alvim Moab, that what was the, they, they went, and this was by the water, by the Jordan, by the Jordan, uh, you know, country, that by that, by that water, that corresponds to the physicality. What were the sins that they did in the physicality in the Alvim Moab? That was the immoral acts of the women of Moab, the women of Moab over there. So we see over here, that the Torah was given three times corresponding to three areas. But the evil inclination went and took those three parts and took that, you know, and tested the Jewish people, you know, and unfortunately get the Jewish people to fail in those areas. And these grave mistakes will remain with the Jewish nation until the coming of Mashiach. But we must remember that Shavuot, the day that's coming up, a day that we will re-experience that very first acceptance of the Torah at Hasinai. At that moment, we have with us, within us the ability to become perfect receptors, become perfect, oblivious to everything else other than the Word of God. And we may have made, you know, Averot, we may have made sins since then, with our bodies, with our intellects, and even with our emotions. But this day afford us the opportunity to go and sort of retune them for their intended task and bring yourselves back a little closer to bring the world a little closer back to its final goal. And with that, we'll open up with any questions. Okay. Um, okay, so we have here a question. Okay, so if it's not the nation's problem... Why are they jealous of them? I'm assuming that the question is, is that why are the nations of the world jealous of the Jewish people? Um, you know, I'm assuming if it's not, then please, you could go and you could retype that question. So why did the... The reason why, one of the reasons is, is that when the, the nations of the world, you know, even though they didn't want to, you know, subscribe to getting the Torah, they still, you know, like it's sort of like they pass on an opportunity, but they don't want anybody else to get that opportunity. You know, so if someone comes up to you with a business idea, you have to work hard and you may have passed it up. Deep down, there is a, there's like an evil inclination inside of you that sort of be like, you know what? Okay, fine. I don't want to have this to happen because I don't want to work so hard, but why should anybody else have this success either? So the, this is also one of the reasons that the nations of the world, they, they have a problem with the Jewish people being the chosen nation, being the nation that they, even though their work is hard of the Jew, for a Jew, and they have to do, but still, it's sort of like a jealousy that comes up. Um, okay, uh, next question is the 
whole Torah was said at Hasinai and then repeated twice more later on. What does the whole Torah refer to? Is that only the Asalta Dibbat or was it more than that? So it was whatever they had at that point in time, which was the majority of the Torah. So to what extent of how they, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was definitely more than that. Okay. How long, the next question was, how long was the whole event of Matan Torah? So it started from the morning with the sounds and the noises and the shaking and all of that. And by mid-afternoon, it, you know, it, it, it finished. So it, it took, you know, quite a few hours. Um, probably a big, a big chunk of the day. Okay. Based, the next question is, based on, on your topic, the day the world has changed forever. Can you provide any examples on how the secular law is derived from the Torah? Um, so, and then thank you for the comment on that. For the uh, okay, so now the so the, what's very interesting is that the way that the world works is they sort of like take things from different uh, from from different nationalities, um, and this is where you have um, you know I don't know I don't want to start bringing down like let's say Buddhism or, or any of those far far east religions and what they did was is that they sort of like chul and pot basically they had um, one you know one idea in one religion and another day another religion and then the third religion came up and says you know they sort of like can't pick I'll take this I'll take this I'll take this and they sort of put it together so the Jewish the Jewish when the when the Jewish people got the, the Torah from Har Sinai they received the Torah but then it stayed with the Jewish people. It didn't start getting picked. Where it started getting picked, at, at least at a, a larger scale, is where Christianity and Islam sort of branched off. And when you see from it, Christianity and Islam sort of took out a bunch of things from the Torah and they implemented it into their own thing. For example, in Islam, you're not allowed to eat pig. Why shouldn't they eat pig? Like, what's, what's the big deal? Because the Torah says you're not supposed to eat pig. In Christianity, there's so many different ideas and concepts that they went and they took from the, from the Torah and they implemented into their, uh, into their religion. And that happens from that and it also happens from an ethical, you know, standpoint as, you know, as well. That's from a religious standpoint. But the ethical standpoint also, the Jewish people, um, also had a very big impact on the ethical, uh, way that the world, uh, went. So the next question is, that people that were blind and deaf were able to see and hear? And the answer is yes. They were able to go, they were healed from everything. Lame, blind, deaf, they were able to, to completely heal. So, yeah, so the question that was asked, is there a specific cephal that mentions the three association that I mentioned with the intellect, emotion, and the body uh, with Mount So, yes, this is based off uh, what I said the last part of the shul, that was based off the Shemi Shmuel. The Shemi Shmuel is, um, uh, you know, uh, I love the Shemi Shmuel. Ugh, it's unbelievable. There is an English version on it, and uh, um, uh, that's not the full, you know, the full translation of the Shemi Shmuel, but it does have a large, you know, it doesn't have, it has, has select, uh, you know, concepts of the Shemi Shmuel. It's, it's on the Pashiata the holidays. Strongly recommend everybody to buy it. Oh, I loved it. You know, like, as growing up, I remember, like, uh, you know, I would read that, like, every single week, that would be like, like, I was connected to Shemesh Mol, I loved it. Okay. Um, yes, Shemesh Mol on Parsha on holidays, correct. I don't know what's the, you know, how the cover looks, but there there is an English version out there. I have it somewhere in my house, but I use it so much that my covers are now rubbed out. So yeah, I can't even, even if I find that, I won't be able to show it to you. You won't be able to see it. Any other questions? Oh, okay, we have here. Um, okay, in this week's parasha, Hashem made a selection among the tribes to confirm the army of Israel, all men 20 years and upward. The exceptions are the Levim. Two questions. One, does the Kohanim are also exempt? So yes, the, the, the Shevet of Levi, Kohanim um, come from the Shevet of Levi. 
um, as as well. And the, the second question, is there a, any similarity in modern days in which the ultra-Orthodox and the Yeshiva Bracham being exempt from today's Israel secular army? So that is a question that is heated, especially if you're in Israel. Woo, that's a dangerous question to go and, and to ask. So... Um, there is, uh, you know, a concept that, um, and it's not only a concept, it's a foundation, that what the people that are sitting and learning to law protect Israel more than the soldiers. Not to say that the soldiers are not doing an amazing job and they're protecting and it's needed, whatever it is, of course. But the the concept of what the people that are sitting and learning to law all day, they are actually helping the army just as much as the army is doing it. Now, for people that are you know, new to religion, it's very hard to comprehend this concept. But from a spiritual standpoint, they have protection. They're giving protection to the, you know, to, to the nation at, you know, to, at whole. Okay. Um, the next question is, you mentioned that uh, Levi brought the Shekhinah closer. What about the other Shvatim? They didn't help. The, the Midash, if I'm not mistaken, that says, says specifically on the Shevet of Levi. The Shevet of Levi was on a, uh, a spiritual level that was different than everybody else. And that was even from the time of when they were in Egypt. The Shevet of Levi were ones that were not working with everybody else. Everybody, all the other Shvatim were working. So the Shevet of Levi were, go, were, were focused on spiritual achievements even from the beginning. Okay. That seems that we had uh, answered the final uh, question. So if there are no other final questions, we'll end it off over here. And with that, I will wish you a amazing, uplifting, and joyful holiday of the upcoming Shavuot. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.